Hello, and welcome to Objective Health. I'm your host, Doug, and with me today is Elliot. Hello. So, we are just two bros doing a show today. Our ladies, our usual ladies are not with us, but they will be back. So, today we're going to be doing another episode of In the News, where we kind of um, look at the latest headlines in health um, and lately it's been kind of nothing but COVID. Um, and a lot of ours are at least somewhat loosely related to the whole COVID fiasco. But um, we thought we would also take a look at some of the other stuff going on um, because other health news doesn't stop just because there's a fake pandemic going on. So to start things off, um, the Nutrition Coalition uh, had an article up uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and it said members of USDA committee blow whistle on serious flaws in dietary guidelines process. So what the article covers basically is um, there were a whistleblower or several whistleblowers who are in on the dietary guidelines for Americans um, who have basically been blowing the whistle on the whole operation. Uh, kind of saying that they're, it, the whole process by which they go through and make recommendations on um, what will be recommended for the, uh, the American people uh, is very problematic, to say the least. Um, some of the stuff that they're saying is that there's a lack of time to finish scientific reviews. Uh, reviews are deleted and added um, without public notice. There's lack of consistent standards across all the subcommittees, uh, lack of time for the USDA to adopt reforms mandated by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And that's an interesting one, actually, because not too long ago, I think it was maybe 2015, they mandated that they would have sort of like a peer review process by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, um, because they've basically been, um, you know, beholden to no one for the whole time that they've been doing it. So they finally said, okay, we're going to get an outside uh, group to kind of take a look at what we're doing and give recommendations and stuff. And now they're basically saying that, oh, yeah, we don't have time to, to, inter you know, to actually take any of those recommendations on board. They also say there's inconsistent evaluation of scientific evidence, exclusion of major bodies of evidence, including almost all the studies on weight loss and virtually all studies on low-carbohydrate diets. And... I mean, for us and anybody who is even moderately uh, within the low-carb community, you don't even have to say that. Anybody who kind of does, has realized the value of uh, low-carb diets recognizes that the dietary guidelines um, really don't reflect any of the research that's going on um, there. Because, I mean, there's studies coming out all the time that are showing the benefits of low-carbohydrate eating um, regimens and that isn't is completely ignored in the dietary guidelines they don't say anything like that they're still saying cut your fat you know cut saturated fats um avoid meats all that kind of stuff yeah and it's ironic i think we were speaking about this a uh, couple of months ago maybe yeah it's got to be a couple of months ago now we did a show and we were uh discussing it's interesting. Was it the leader or the head of the American Diabetes Association? Yeah. Actually yeah. came out and said that she herself 
follows a low carbohydrate or kind of ketogenic diet mm-hmm. yet the international association does not does not recommend those guidelines in fact many of the people who follow the um the guidelines set by these uh, international massive institutions end up getting worse or they certainly don't improve their health condition yeah. um and so really anyone who um who who has actually adopted or looked into alternative methods to improve their health has come across low carbohydrate or reduced carbohydrate diets um the importance of eating animal fats i mean the the head of this coalition is Nina Takeholt. Is she's that how great. you pronounce her name? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she's authored a couple of books. The most well-known is The Big Fat Surprise. And, you know, for years she's been lobbying and educating on the benefits of animal foods and how they have been demonized historically. Um, and, and really, I mean, I think it's old news now. It's old news. It's something that we once knew and understood. And then there's been a lot of propaganda in the 21st century, the latter half of the 21st century, sorry, latter half of the 20th century. Um, but now I think it's, it's very much time to discard that. Um, and anyone who looks into nutrition can, can see that. Um, and and it's, it's kind of, it, yeah, it, it seems like it's a very long and drawn out process when it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the coalition, um, actually on their, on their website, they've got a pretty good overview of, um, they actually offer it for free, the report of exactly what, um, what is wrong with the science. And they also give some recommendations, um, on how scientists or how the science can be improved um, they're talking about things like enhancing transparency with the public. Um, they're looking at tr- finding ways to try to improve um, the results or Im- improve the efficacy of the data that, sci- that scientists or that trials are, are getting. Um, they, they want to change the methods that scientists use. Um, and they've got lots of kind of recommendations on how it can be done. I think one of the biggest problems that we're up against is private funding, is financial interests. Mm -hmm. And I think this is probably the biggest issue that um, that these people who are lobbying for change are actually up against. Because Mm -hmm. we have to understand that there are major powers involved uh, or who benefit from the current dietary guidelines. In fact, that's the reason that they're there. Um, And these kind of powers are the people who are above the law. They are above scientific transparency so to speak and and they really you know they really control things so we're talking about the big multinational corporations the big agriculture even big pharma to some extent there's many different um you know areas of money making schemes kind of thing which profit or benefit from people being a state of being in a state of chronic illness Mm-hmm. So I think even even though even though the science is um is is rightly criticised or the faulty science is rightly criticised, I think it's going to be, you know, I think it's going to be difficult to make any any major changes where we currently are. But that's yeah. just my opinion. It could just be. I think cynical. that's probably true. I mean, it well, it might be cynical, but I think it's also fairly realistic. I mean, you have very entrenched 
bodies that are um, self-interested. And I mean, one of the things that that really comes across in this whole uh, whistleblower thing is that it seems like the actual committee for the dietary guidelines is like more of a formality than anything else. They're just kind of rushing through. There's lack of time to finish the scientific reviews. Reviews are added and deleted as like willy-nilly. Um, there's no real consistent standards. It really seems like you're kind of on the board. They push a bunch of stuff at you and you kind of sign off on it. And there you go. You've got the dietary guidelines. And, you know, the decision-making that goes on between like for like what actual science is looked at and what isn't, I would imagine, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine is very heavily influenced by who's given them money, right? And that's essentially the food processors. So if the science is pointing to uh, low-carbohydrate diets being good for uh, health, for weight loss, for all these sorts of things, um, then the food processors who don't, you know, processed food is like overwhelmingly not low carbohydrate diet friendly, right? It's loaded with sugar, loaded with carbs, all that kind of stuff. Then obviously they're not going to want to see that reflected in the dietary guidelines. They want people eating their food, their breakfast cereals, their chips, their snacks, their cakes, chocolate bars, all that kind of stuff. So it's not really surprising that um, that's essentially what you're seeing reflected in these guidelines. And, you know, they'll, you know, they'll be politically correct about it. And like, they'll put, you know, limitations on things like, oh, only get, you know, whatever it is, 10% of your calories from sugar or something like that. But realistically, it's like the food pyramid, or it's not a pyramid anymore, it's the my plate, does not reflect a healthy diet. It's as simple as that. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Um, and it doesn't take a you know, a nutritional scientist or a doctor to, to see that it's fairly, fairly obvious. Um, but it, it seems that this kind of problem is applicable to many aspects of science, right? Mm-hmm. Especially medicine, especially medicine, especially health. Um, and, you know, as I was saying before, if, if you, if you, it's, it's interesting because if you read scientific research papers published in the 1930s or 1940s, even the 1950s to some extent, you see how research scientists, research doctors, they seem very much um, open-minded about many things. You mm-hmm. know, I've been, It's kind of off topic, but I've been doing a lot of research into, into the old uh, studies that were done using high-dose vitamins, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so there were doctors in the 1930s who were reporting excellent results from using very high doses of certain vitamins, which are dirt cheap, essentially. Um, they were using these for all kinds of conditions, one being you know, multi- multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's, for instance. They were using them with excellent results. And then there comes a point in the scientific literature where you realize the research just completely drops off. Mm. It just disappears into these nutrients. And then actually a lot of the research into pharmaceutical medications becomes more prominent prominent and that reflects this 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 funding essentially when science w- you know when science was drawn away from actually finding out the truth toward how it can um, promote a narrative or, or provide evidence to sell a product yeah. or to you know act as a kind of you know evidence to support the selling of a product 
in this case, it could be pharmaceuticals. In another case that we're talking about um, is is selling a nutrient replete diet or depleted diet, which is highly profitable, but which actually, you know, is is causing at least people in the Western world, but really internationally, it's causing people severe health problems. Yeah, totally. Um, what year? Yeah. When was that that you saw the change in the science? Like, do you, was there like a, a year or a time period or something that you noticed that it started changing? It's difficult to say. Okay, but it was. It seems to be around the forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. The fifties. Up until then, it was like you know you have doctors who are reporting things which would be considered kind of heresy today, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure when mm. financial interests took a uh, play to start, started playing a, a larger role in scientific funding and things, but it was definitely around that time period that you saw uh, science very much shift towards well, pharmaceutical based medicine. And mm-hmm. that's, it was in the fifties when you had Ansel Keys uh, coming out with his war against fat. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it kind of seemed to coincide with one another. It was almost like science that's was hijacked or yeah. health science was hijacked, hijacked anyway. That's interesting. There was a, another article actually that relates to this, um, by Jeff Volek. It was, um, it's on the Hill. Uh, nutrition policy must be at the center of the conversation. And he's essentially, I mean, he's not referring to any whistleblowers or anything like that, but he um, basically makes a very good point that, um, you know, one of the things that's come up from this whole COVID thing is that it became readily apparent fairly early on that people who had underlying um, conditions were much more vulnerable to this virus. Um, especially people who had obesity, type 2 diabetes, and the like, you know, metabolic syndrome, essentially. And his argument is more or less like, you know, come on, guys, like, let's do something about this. We have a significant amount of science that's showing us that if you are following a low-carbohydrate diet, um, that your, you know, all of those conditions are helped immensely by that. And yet our dietary guidelines are still pushing a diet that is high in carbohydrates. And it's like, you know, the, the, the dietary guidelines are not reflecting the science. It's as simple as that. And, you know, when you combine that with the Nutrition Coalition article that's talking about what this whistleblower is saying, it's really, it's no wonder. You know, it's, it's like they're leaving huge chunks of the science out to essentially keep on putting out the same dietary guidelines every five years. You know, it's like they're not really making significant changes. It's like there's a little bit of tweaks here and there and stuff. It's like, you know, oh, salt, you know, we change the amount of salt that you're allowed, which is kind of a nothing recommendation anyway. But realistically, overall, the thing, it's still pro- like, you know, it's still promoting the same foods over and over and over again. And things are just getting worse. He actually goes into, um, I think, unless it was a different article that I'm confusing it with. But he was going into, yeah, I think it's a different article that I, I, I'm, I was thinking about. But um, he does get into uh, kind of how much um, obesity is costing uh, the U.S. Um, yearly. Uh, basically, 
it's nearly 150 billion um, for obesity-related medical costs and uh, insurance and all those kinds of things. Um, and diabetes is even worse. It's like 327 billion. Um, yeah. So essentially, it's like it's it's a real it's a total shit show. It's like you know the the basically it's like we we have this i you know this this knowledge that um and you know anybody who knows anything about health recognizes that diet plays a huge role in health and whether or not you can get acute diseases it's not necessarily just the the chronic diseases like the diabetes um you know uh heart disease all those sorts of things but you're actually much more susceptible to acute diseases like covid-19 um if you aren't healthy if you don't have an underlying baseline of health and the dietary guidelines are not helping with that at all no of course not um and it's i mean it's like any other um any any other health condition right it's like okay so if you if your body is not healthy i mean it's so silly that this needs to be spelled out it's yeah. so absolutely crazy that you have a guy having to write a very comprehensive article just to explain such a basic concept if your body is is not working as it should be because you're not feeding it the right things then the way that the immune system which is part of the body it's not separate <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of the body the way that the immune system works is is fundamentally determined by your overall state of health, mm -hmm. your immune system uses things like nutrients to function properly. Now, if you do not have enough nutrients, then the immune system does not work properly. If you have chronic inflammation, then that will change the immune system. If you have metabolic problems, you know, all of these things tie in together to essentially reduce your immune system. If you have a reduced immune system, you are more likely to get an infection and you're more likely to die of an infection. Mm -hmm. Simple. I mean, that's not a hard concept to understand. And I really don't think it's, um, I don't think it's, it's, it's surprising in any way that the people who are susceptible to COVID are the people with multiple underlying health conditions, mm -hmm. one including metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, because these things fundamentally disrupt the immune system. How do you address that? Well, it's not by a vaccine, as we're going to see in a minute. <laughs> That's certainly not the way that you address that. Right. And because that does not address the fundamental underlying cause, which is the faulty immune system. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it angers me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand that. But, and, and as obvious as it is to us, I do actually think that to your average person, it maybe might not be so obvious. They don't necessarily make a connection between the fact that they're eating junk and they're getting sick more often. You know, it's like, even when I, I, I talk to people who, who have nothing to do with health and don't understand health at all or something like that, it's like this concept isn't obvious to them. It's kind of like, you know, when, when you say, you know, they'll, they'll tie it to weight loss. You know, it's kind of like what you're eating, you know, that, that is directly uh, related to uh, your weight. Okay, they can understand that. But it's where kind of like when they say, oh, yeah, I'm really run down. I'm getting every cold that's coming along. And you say, oh, well, you know, what's your diet like? And they're kind of like, diet? What does that have to do with anything? Like it really, it, it seems like it should be obvious. But I think that to the average person, maybe it's not. I think, I think 
society in general would do well if we had mandatory um, training on how the immune system works. Mm. You know, mandatory education in schools. This is how your immune system works. And this is how you improve your immune system. Mm -hmm. This is how you improve your health. Problem is, it ties back to what we were saying before, is that science was co-opted fundamentally. Mm -hmm. You know, medicine, health, was taken away from a holistic view that what you put in your body and how you live your life affects your health toward a pharmaceutical-based view, which is fun- which is basically characterized by the idea that if you have a certain health condition, you pop this pill for it, or you mm-hmm. take this cream, or you have this nasal inhaler, uh, like a you know nasal spray or something like that. You use a drug. You don't try to address the cause of why your body has that condition. You just take a drug. Yeah. So in fact, yeah, I think you're right in that most people don't make the connection, but when you do eventually make the connection, it seems so obvious Yeah. because it actually kind of is. And it's something that we knew or our you know, ancestors knew for time immemorial. It's mm-hmm. just, we've been manipulated on a mass scale um, to lose faith in our in our bodies lose faith in 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 nature right in nature mm-hmm. yeah that's true well talking since, about vaccines yeah speaking of vaccines <laughs> so pharmaceutical companies <laughs> what's that? yeah pharmaceutical companies let's go from uh the uh, food processing companies to the pharmaceutical companies um so the New York State Bar Association, actually, Damien, maybe you can pull up this article. State Bar Association's health law section report calls for mandatory COVID-19 vaccination, among other things. Um, we're really just focusing on that. It's basically just uh, an article, um, or more like a press release, actually, that was talking about, they put out some kind of report, um, the New York State Bar Association. And, you know, some of the stuff they're talking about there is, you know, allocating ventilators and personal protective equipment and all this other kind of stuff. Like it's basically recommendations of things that they've learned from the, um, the pandemic, plandemic, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, snuck in there, of course, is the idea and encouragement for mandatory vaccinations. Um, once the vaccine comes out, everybody's got to get it. Um, and this idea, you know, it's, it, it's, I mean, this is just the, the New York uh, State Bar Association, but um, this idea is, is gla- gaining global um, kind of acceptance, promotion. Um, everybody's basically talking about this. They've got everybody so scared that the second a vaccine is out, not only are they going to go get it, but they're going to go and insist that everybody else get it as well. Um, yeah. What do you think about that, Elliot? <laughs> I mean, where to start? You know, it's yeah. um, it's it's disturbing. It's very disturbing because uh, it's it's not just them calling for something like this. I mean, there's there's many. It seems to be on on the on the cards, right? There's many kind of different sources who are who are pushing for for a mandatory vaccine who are pushing or who are kind of frothing at the mouth at the idea of a vaccine coming out shortly. Um, it's dangerous because, well, 
there's lots of reasons why it's dangerous. First of all, is that um, it's it's not been done in history. If if this is the first time that this will have been done, right? Mandat- mandatory vaccination for everyone. Mm. Are they talking? Are they would this would this include religious exemption, or would this be against religious exemption? Yeah, well, there's a guy, a lawyer whose name escapes me right now, but he was uh, a couple of months ago, actually not even, it was probably about a month ago, he put out a statement that said that um, religious exemption is, is nonsense and all these things are stupid. And if they want, if they, they, the American government has fully has the right to stick a needle in your arm by gunpoint, um, yeah. which of course had the you know people freaking out about that statement um and it's interesting because all the people who are arguing for it always seem to bring up this case from 1905 the u.s supreme court presented with jacobson uh versus massachusetts um which was a state enforced smallpox vaccination he was basically um i think he was a preacher or something like that um or a minister or something, something along those lines anyway. And he didn't want to get the um, smallpox vaccination and they made him get it or no, sorry, they didn't make him get it. They made him pay a fine for not getting it. Right. So anyway, the, the point is it isn't really a precedent setting case, you know, this and it was back in 1905 for one thing, the Supreme court, you know, just because once they made somebody do it doesn't mean that, you know, even though it's a precedent, it doesn't, you know, they've been wrong before. Right. So it, it they always tend to bring up this case, even though it, it doesn't really relate. It was basically like, I don't want to get the vaccine. Okay. You have to pay a $5 fine. I don't know, every week or something like that. And he was like, fine. And that was it. Right. So it isn't really like a precedent for, um, mandatory vaccination. Um, but they are basically stating that it is, and they do have the right um, to force vaccinations on people, um, which is nonsense. I mean, it's wrong on so many levels. <clears throat> you could look at it from multiple perspectives. One is the health perspective. So, there are well-established vaccine side effects of almost every vaccine right now. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that the vaccination rate for any given, I don't know, vaccine. What is it? It's, it's nowhere near hundred percent, right? I can't remember exactly what the percentage is, but for any given vaccine, I think the levels are similar like 50% or 40% even it's, it's, it's like a lot less than you'd think it was for certain vaccines that aren't, um, you've got your standard vaccines that are given to young children, but then mm-hmm. the the adult vaccines like the boosters and things like right. a lot of people don't actually get those, right? Mm-hmm. But even with those, you get thousands of vaccine-related side effects. So, so people being injured by vaccines, right? So in terms of the health effects, well, the type of vaccines that they're looking at bringing in, mRNA vaccines, so the company who is who is really heavy into research at the moment, I think they're called Moderna. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Moderna? Yep. Now, they, I think they've got a couple of trials running, but one of those is for an mRNA vaccine, um, which is essentially, you know, it's the first of its kind. Um, 
animal research has not been uh <laughs> it's not shown good results let's say <clears throat> there's research um the type of vaccine that they're using it's 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 essentially genetic 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 modification right mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it contains messenger rna which is essentially um is is very much the first of its kind and and could potentially have lots of problems with that right there is no va- the vaccines haven't been i mean generally usually it takes like a couple of years mm-hmm. to get a vaccine tested because yeah. you have to go through multiple different processes of you know you've got like the um in the petri dish data you've got the animal data you've got uh, long-term trials that need to be tested then you've got human trials if those long-term animal trials have not have have, have passed and then you've got all of this other kind of safety testing just to kind of push a vaccine through. Now, a lot of the time there is corruption involved there and there are vaccines which are pushed through which aren't safe. But, you know, just assuming that the vaccine kind of um, that, that whole process is, is valid, then we would be waiting at least a, a year or a couple of years to, get, you know, to get a good, yeah, to, to get a, a safe vaccine. Whereas these individuals who are pushing for this mandatory vaccination, it's almost like when you hear them speak or when you read the words, it's like they don't care about that stuff. It's like they want a vaccine and they want it now. And the problem is there is a great potential that this vaccine, if it is mandatory, then it's going to cause a lot of um, side effects and be highly detrimental to people's health, Um, particularly the people who are already compromised. So if someone's healthy, then yeah, okay, they might not have a problem. But if we're looking at forced mandatory vaccination, that means that you're vaccinating a bunch of people who would ordinarily not be, you know, might not be vaccinated because they are concerned for their health. So there's a like a large community of people who are interested in improving their health, people with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, mm-hmm. all of these different people who do their best to support their health in a variety of ways. They might take nutritional supplements. They might you know, follow special diets and they've made very good progress. But these people are fundamentally susceptible to the effects of something like this kind of vaccine. If you mandate that, you are putting so many people at risk and just on the health front, I think that it would be disastrous personally. I mm-hmm. think it would very much be disastrous. But there's also the fact that you're essentially, I mean, talk about medical tyranny, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> where, where is, it's meant to be a free country. You're meant to have yeah. free choice, right, in, in the USA. I mean, that is, that sets a precedent, which, I mean, that could lead to a lot of, uh, you know, increasing controls further on down the line as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it's a fundamental human rights issue, right? It's like what they, anytime you're just saying like a mandated medical treatment is essentially stepping in and saying, you do not have the right to decide how you want to take care of your health or do, you know, whatever. You don't have the right to determine what medical procedures you undergo. Now, I mean, there are 
lots of instances, well, maybe not lots, but there are certainly a few instances where you can actually say, well, yeah, there are instances where um, people are subjected to medical treatments um, without their consent. One of them being water fluoridation, right? That's a, that is a medical yeah. treatment. Um, and if you're just dumping fluoride into the water um, of a community, then that community does not have, they have not consented to that medical treatment. And the same thing could be said for, well, I mean, mandatory vaccination is the exact same thing, right? So fundamentally, um, it is uh, an abridgment of people's rights as human beings to say, I have the right to freely determine what medical procedures I want to undergo. And I just, it's, it's so stupid just at the very fundamental level. It's kind of like if you are a vaccinated person and your vaccine works, like everybody says that it works, then how is me not being vaccinated a problem? Yeah, that's I what mean, it comes down to. Then they get into all this stuff about herd immunity and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it's, it's finally it, like, honestly, like if there are vulnerable people in the population who can't get the vaccine, which is interesting because then that shows that there is potentially negative effects from the vaccine, which usually they deny completely. But if there's people who, who can't get the vaccine and they need to be protected from herd immunity, then you need to protect those people. You know, that's the way I see it. That doesn't mean that I have to get your vaccination because somebody out there might be vulnerable. And by me not getting the vaccination, we're not going to reach herd immunity. Well, I have a different perspective on things. I think that we, I would rather reach natural herd immunity. You know, I would rather be exposed to the virus in a natural setting and let my immune system deal with it. Um, Anyway, I'm off on a bit of a tangent here, but yeah, no, exactly. Um, I mean, that's that's the most. Uh, I mean, we've spoken about this argument just so many times on this show before. I swear, yeah. it's been like, it's you true. know five years kind of thing going over it. It's like you know, it's a very basic concept that if you have five percent of people who don't want the vaccine, then let it be up to them if if they want to expose themselves to the potential of coming into the into contact with the virus. In fact, if the vaccine is said to work as well as it as they say it does, then those 95% should be safe. Mm-hmm. They're not going to get it. Because mm-hmm. if the vaccine stops their body from getting the virus, then surely it's only the 5% who are going to be susceptible to the virus. And I'm pretty sure that us in the 5%, we'd be more than happy to face the virus rather than have the vaccine. Thank exactly. you very much. Yeah. Um, but again, the authoritarians who are making these decisions, no, for those, it's a, it's almost like a threat, right? And it's potentially not even related to the fact that they believe or, you know, I would say they don't even necessarily need to believe that the vaccine is that essential. I think for many of the authoritarians in power, like, They just want to exert power and control over people. Mm -hmm. And to think that someone is not following their guidelines or someone is not doing as they're told, then they want to put people in their place. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's, that's what a lot of this comes down to as well. They want complete conformity. They're, you know, they're power hungry, many of them. And so, you know, I, th- I think there's, of course, there's the medical argument if you do buy into the whole idea of vaccines, but it's almost like very much it's just another way to gradually strip away people's freedoms and implement more controls um, in as many ways as possible. And again, once you start accepting 
or, you know, once you set that precedent for mandatory vaccination and people accept that, then who's to say that they cannot implement mandatory lobotomy yeah. for people who are, you know, disagreeable in some way to the, to the, to the system, you know, and then that's, you know, we're probably familiar with brave new world. Uh, this concept, you know, this totalitarian regime in the future, mm. ultimately when they can come into your house and strip you down and kind of lock you up in a cell and then insist that you take whatever medication that destroys your brain because you have a political opinion that is, uh, incorrect. You know, that's incorrect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's wrong on so many fronts. It yeah. really is. And the funny um, thing is, sorry, go on. No, 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 go ahead, because I was going to speak about... Well, I was just um, going to say, because you're talking about the authoritarians in power, and I think it's also the authoritarians just kind of, in the general populace, are threatened whenever you kind of are making a decision that goes against the decision that they've made. And I've noticed that, especially when, um, you know, when I would talk about uh, my diet um, to people who are not into the idea of changing their diet at all... Um, get kind of threatened by it. And, you know, it's like, how is what I'm eating have anything to do with you? You know, but they'll kind of start arguing and, and, you know, challenging you and being kind of put off by the fact that you, you, you know, like, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't eat bread. It's kind of like, what do you mean you don't eat bread? And they'll get very kind of almost in, in some cases would kind of get hostile. And it's kind of like what, what I determined is that these people are basically just threatened because you have made a decision different from their decision and that kind of forces them to question their own decision or that it's yeah. somehow insulting to them because you're suggesting that they've made the wrong decision. And I think the same thing applies to the vaccine thing. It's kind of like, well, I've decided to blindly follow the authorities and get the vaccination. And why aren't you doing the same thing? You know, that's, that's a threat because it's kind mm -hmm. of like something that they don't want to have to question. And suddenly just by you existing, you, are forcing them to question that decision. Yeah, very much so. It's almost like it's such a threat to their worldview um, and that it could shatter at any, any one given time that they need to shut you out and shut you down so mm -hmm. that, you know, they can continue with their nice, um, well-placed uh, reality, view yeah. of reality as everything fits together. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I agree. I was just going to say on on the on the topic of of people responding negatively to a um to a vaccine there was just a bizarre story oh, that yeah. came out it was I mean it was a couple of weeks ago it was an article published on um on a website called Stat News <laughs> it's really just bizarre I mean it was expected right because they've been doing um trials human trials for this COVID-19 vaccine. I think we did speak about it a couple of weeks ago when they announced it. Um, but yeah, so they've, they've been doing, they've been doing human trials. Um, and out of the, how many, sorry, I've lost exactly how many people were in the, in the trial. It was a phase one clinical trial. And there was 45 people in the study. And out of the 45 people, it was identified that four participants experienced what is called a grade three adverse event. So a grade three adverse event is essentially a side effect that is severe enough to warrant 
um, immediate medical treatment. So it's not necessarily life-threatening like immediately, but it does need immediate uh, medical treatment. So this guy, that one of the guys who had had this this uh, severe reaction to the vaccine, he'd actually given like an interview for a website. So he'd spoken about the vaccine. Um, after he was given the vaccine within 12 hours, um, he developed a fever of more than 103 degrees. I had to seek out medical attention. Um, and so, yeah, he had been released. He'd gone to urgent care facility. He'd then been released and he fainted when he got home as well. Uh, apparently he recovered within a day, but it was a pretty severe side effect that he did get. And so, so he was talking, he's giving this interview about, about having the side effect. Um, and although it caused such a severe reaction in him, um, he, he, he still said that he, uh, that he supported the vaccine. He thought it was a great thing and that, um, and that he, he didn't regret, he didn't regret having it. Yeah. Even though he said it was the sickest he's ever been. Yeah. He said that he didn't regret it and he hopes that his story doesn't dissuade other people from getting the vaccine. Yeah. I mean, three people out of a study of 45 means that what you have a one in 15 chance of having a grade three reaction, you know, considering, yeah, four uh, people, it's four people. It was four people, four people. So it's even, even greater than that. Then it's like one um, in 12, one in, yeah, about that. So considering the chances of you having an asymptomatic reaction to actual COVID is like 80% or something like that. I think I'll take my chances with the uh, actual COVID. I don't need that vaccine. Thanks very much. I, yeah, I mean, you know, the dangerous thing about this is that, I mean, the guy had such a severe reaction almost immediately, but that does not mean that there are not long-term side effects. Of this, exactly. Right. The animal research, I don't have the statistics like right in my head, but RFK Jr. has spoken about the animal research done on these um, on these types of vaccines, showing that, uh, that there was one looking, trying to find a way to address the coronavirus in the past, a coronavirus vaccine. I think we've spoken about this one on the show. It's essentially showing that these mice, yet they developed immunity to the vaccine and there was no kind of immediate reactions but then when they were exposed to the infection within you know like a, a couple of weeks or something mm -hmm. when they were ex re-exposure upon re-exposure i mean a large proportion of them died yeah yeah you know, i think all of them might have died yeah um so Sim you know, these, these animals were fine after having the vaccine. It was only when they were re-exposed to the virus that they, that they had the, the side effects. So actually, you know, just because he's, he's okay at the minute doesn't mean that he's, you know, that he's going to be okay long-term. I mean, he could develop yeah, exactly. all kinds of side effects. I mean, who knows? Yeah. And considering someone in his age range, I mean, the guy, what, he can't be any more than, what, 30, 35? It says well, the there, I think. Um, yeah, He's I think 29. It's, uh, 29. Yeah, I, I thought he was quite young. Yeah, 29. I mean, 
the chances of him getting coronavirus and then the chances of him actually dying from coronavirus are so minuscule like <laughs> minuscule <laughs> so, so small why yeah. on earth would you put your body through through that kind of vaccine to to prevent against a virus which is practically non-existent in your age range i it's think just bizarre. i think that he's like a, a young idealist who has drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, essentially, he sounds like a cult member, basically. You know, it's like one of those cult members who is in a cult and is like, they're doing obvious damage to the person, and yet they're still like, oh, no, it's great. You know, it's it's great here. I love it. It's fantastic. You know, he's he has completely signed up for the whole narrative 100%. And he thinks that, you know... On, on, he probably thinks that he's doing good. You know what I mean? Like this is this. He's he's helping like humanity in some way. He thinks he's a hero. I mean, the guy's like super naive. What can you say? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a, a word for it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Sorry. anyway, I think. Is there anything else to say about the? We uh, we talked a lot on both those topics. I mean, we did have a third thing to talk about today, but I think uh, we are kind of running short on time. Um, we're actually over our time. But um, I don't know, Elliot, did you have anything else to say about uh, the COVID mandatory vaccination? Um, I won't begin it. Yeah, nor, the, nor will I, especially if Bill Gates is behind it. <laughs> People can go back and watch our Bill Gates show to see what I mean by that, if you actually don't know what I mean by that. But I don't trust that guy as far as I could throw him. Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe uh, if you are so inclined to do so. We will be back with another show next week, uh, and we'll see you then. Thanks to Elliot and to Damien in the background, who I forgot to introduce. Damien's been with us the whole time. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. See you next time. See you later. See you next time.